The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Yourself? Doing well, Father. Thanks for being here tonight. You're very welcome, sir. Father, I wanted to talk tonight about a very interesting book. You've referenced this in, in previous <coughs> programs before. It's titled An Exorcist Tells His Story. This is by Father Gabriel Amorth. He was the chief exorcist in Rome for a number of years. He just recently uh, passed away, I understand. And I I would like to just kind of touch on some of the main points throughout this book, Father, because this is a a very fascinating topic. I think everyone would agree. And uh, I think it's also very, very topical, very pertinent in, in today's world. And perhaps the main point, Father, that uh, this Father Gabriel Amorth makes over and over again throughout this book is that uh, exorcisms today are very rare. There are, in the Novus Ordo Church, of which he is a member, uh, there are extremely, extremely few uh, priests and even bishops who are willing to perform exorcism. This is certainly not because there are a lack of individuals uh, who need exorcisms performed. It's rather just because these bishops and uh, these priests are simply unwilling uh, for a multitude of reasons to perform these exorcisms. And just a, a few um, examples that I would like to quote, Father. These are actually from Novus Ordo bishops uh, that Father Gabriel Amorth quotes in his books as, as reasons that these priests and bishops will not perform exorcisms. Uh, so a few quotes here from some Novus Ordo bishops. One said, I do not appoint exorcists as a matter of principle. I believe only in psychology. Uh, another said, I have not found any priest who is willing to accept this task. Go look elsewhere. Another bishop said, I do not appoint exorcists and do not practice exorcisms because I am afraid. If the devil becomes my enemy, what am I to do? So, Father, what in the world is going on here? How could a supposed bishop of the Catholic Church be afraid of the devil and afraid of making the devil his enemy? What in the world is going on? Well, you know, Tom, you have to look at the bright side. At least that particular Novus Ordo bishop believes in the devil, right? It's true. And he's afraid of make, crossing him, right? And making him an enemy. So, I mean, the one, the one quote you started with said that I believe only in psychology. So mm-hmm. he's not afraid of the devil because he doesn't even believe in him. Right. You know? But you found, you found a bishop there who actually believes in the devil and is afraid of him. And well, he should be, because as a modernist of the Novus Ordo following Vatican II, he has no defense against him. Um, Father Morth, by the way, is very well credentialed. For uh, 25 years at least, he was the apprentice exorcist in Rome. And uh, then until his death in his mid-90s, he was the chief exorcist for something like 35, 40 years, right? So Father Morth was very, very uh, practiced, so to speak, in the cause of uh, exorcism. 
The book that he wrote, uh, which was published in 1999, first published in 1999, and Exorcist tells the story, was, as he himself says, written as a as, as a call to arms. He was sounding the alarm that there's a ter- terrible need for exorcism now because of the rise of uh, satanic influence and diabolical power in the world. <clears throat> and he says the Catholic cler- clergy is not answering the call. They are they're basically ceding the field to Satan. And again, we know why. I mean, we understand after Vatican II, um, uh, you know, the, the, the church was uh, poisoned by, by modernism, and, uh, and you might even say taken hostage by modernism and modernists. And uh, Father Amort uh, has a lot to say in that book that is very instructive, he criticizes Paul VI, for example, or doing away with the, uh, the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel and the prayers after Low Mass and for um, a variety of other things, uh, like, in, in other words, calling, calling off the, uh, uh, the counteroffensive against Satan, against hell. And he says this, and well, for example, he, he talks about the change in the baptismal, baptismal rite and says they took the exorcism prayers out of the rite of baptism. Well, actually, Paul VI personally apologized for that when it happened, but he never put the prayers back in. The modernist baptismal ceremony called the rite of Christian initiation now, right? Mm-hmm. And so Father Amorth says this was a terrible thing to do, and he, of course he, he was right about that. <clears throat> but he uh, did say that... Um, um, Following Vatican II, the rituale uh, basically was changed entirely, except for one thing, and that was the chapter on exorcism was not only not changed, it basically was buried. It was ignored, it fell into disuse, as though it wasn't even worthy of being reformed by the modernists, you know. I believe you said, Father, that they titled it a work in progress and just left it at that. And just left it there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as a matter of fact, following his book, uh, not long after his book appeared, uh, they did come out with a new rite of exorcism, uh, which Father Amorth said was useless. Wow. And I think he regretted even raising the issue um, because he said if he had to use the new rite of exorcism, he would just give up. And so he continued using the traditional rite of exorcism. It had no, it had power, whereas the new rite has no power. Um, he recognized that. Okay. So Father Amorth himself was kind of a paradox because he saw what was happening in the wake of Vatican II. Mm-hmm. He saw the results of modernism, but he didn't actually come out and denounce it for what it, what it really was, even though he saw the consequences of it. Why? I don't know. Um, there's a lot that could be said about the book, and I, I guess, you know, to respond to specific questions uh, would be worth doing, because I could go into a monologue about what Father Amor says. I will say this, though, <clears throat> um, you know, and, and then turn the floor back over to you for any specific questions you might have, and that is that um, Father Amor actually follows the 21 instructions that are given to exorcists in the traditional ritual. And uh, he follows them very closely. And when you read his book, 
you see it covers various topics. And then you uh, actually go to the Latin ritual, and you see the 21 instructions that are given before the chapter on exorcism. And you see, he's following them very, very carefully. So he obviously is a man who knows very well what he's doing when he, when he is approaching exorcism. As a matter of fact, somebody, uh, he actually mentions in the book that somebody uh, one day brought up to him his, Father Amor's, criticism of the bishops. Father Amor said uh, that a bishop approached him once from another country, maybe another continent, and wanted him to come to do an exorcism. And Father Amor said, well, you have exorcists, you know, have them do it. And he said, well, I don't have anyone who would do it. I don't have any priests who will step forward to do this. So Father Amoris said to the bishop, well, then you do it. And the bishop answered, I wouldn't know where to begin. Right. <clears throat> and this is what he was dealing with. Well, now, since the book came out and since the new useless rite of modernist exorcism came out, uh, which has, as Father Amoris says, has no power, really, over, over Satan or the, the possessing demon, um, they have, there have been uh, seminars and schools of exorcism that have started in the Vatican, there have been, or in Rome, there have been seminars to train exorcists. Um, I have uh, heard that they are really very lightweight and not, not the serious mm -hmm. traditional Catholic understanding of this whole uh, enterprise here, what is needed here. Uh, which doesn't surprise me again, because anything led by modernists, even conservative modernists, is not going to have the force of the Catholic faith behind it right. and the Catholic sacraments behind them. Um, so um, it's it's understandable that the, the, what Father Morth warned about is exactly what we see happening here. There's a capitulation, almost like a, a surrender of uh, the modernists and the modernist church. Well, I mean, it's more than a surrendered time. I mean, we, to be honest, we just have to realize it's more than a mere waving the white flag before the devil. When Francis has a, a pagan idol worshipped before him, right before him, as even uh, his clergy and his, his religious are bowing down before this pagan idol, in the Vatican's uh, gardens, and then taken into the church where there are worship ceremonies where they're being invoked and prayed to, okay? Uh, when, when at the very main entrance to the Colosseum, which has at various times, you know, been, been hallowed ground going back to the time of the martyrs, right? And, um, and it's in the mid-1700s by Pope Benedict XIV, uh, was actually made a place of, place of prayer. And the cross, the bronze cross, was mounted where the emperor formerly sat, presiding over the martyrdoms of the Christians there in the Colosseum, uh, where the stations of the cross were elected, where popes were erected, and, and popes in the past made the stations of the cross on Good Friday. Um, 1749, I think it was Pope... Uh, um, uh, Benedict XIV, I, I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, um, wanted that to be considered hallowed ground by the blood of the martyrs. St. Pius V, before him, even uh, reached down and took up a handful of the soil from the, from the uh, Colosseum and it turned to blood in his hand because of the, the relics of the martyrs. 
Someone had come, someone had come seeking relics, and he he reached out, and took the soil, and the the soil turned to blood in his hand, and he said, "Here are the relics, you know, the very soil of the of the Colosseum." So that what have they done now? They've they've erected a statue of Moloch, of Moloch, uh, in the in the main entranceway into the Colosseum, and um, it is horrific. It is horrific. Uh, this was the, the, the pagan god of the Canaanites, going back into Old Testament times. All of Phoenicia uh, surrendered to the worship of this demon. It was, it's just a demon. A man's body with the head of, a, of an ox or a bull, three eyes, huge maw, and inside the fires to which they would, into which they would throw their own children, their babies. They would throw them in to be burned alive and sacrificed to that uh, demon. Uh, they found uh, at Carthage pits of these charred bones and skulls of children by the hundreds sacrificed to this demon. Okay, Now they erect a, a statue, a, a large, large statue, reproduction of Moloch. Actually, it's based upon the 1914 film Calibria, for which uh, the occultists and masons were actually advisors, especially Denuncio. Uh, Gabriele Denuncio is a very famous occultist name of a very debauched man, uh, Italian at that time, who was advising them on this film. They have a very, very powerful but very sinister, maybe five to seven minute clip within the temple of Moloch. It's a black and white silent film, but it's really powerful. And that's, that's the, the statue that's as pictured there in that film that they have reproduced here now and put outside the Colosseum. It's going to stand there. It, it, uh, it was erected there, I think September 27th, just like nine days before the, uh, before the synod began. And it's going to remain there until March 29th, just before Easter when it's going to be taken away. <clears throat> we hope. But it's part of an exhibit um, Cartago, il mito immortale, Carthage, the immortal myth. Even for pagan Romans, that would be horrifically insulting because their ancestors are the ones who had to fight against Carthage for survival. And Delcipio stood up and said before the Senate, Carthage must be destroyed. Carthago delenda est, it must be destroyed. <clears throat> because there was this death battle going on between Carthage, <clears throat> northern Africa, right, on the coast of the Mediterranean, and Rome. Of course, everybody knows the story of Hannibal and the elephants invading the Iberian Peninsula and trying to destroy Rome, right? And uh, Hannibal was not a hero, he was an evil man. I mean, he was... He was, he was representing a civilization that was based upon child sacrifice. His very name, Hannibal, right? Baal is the name of the pagan gods, the tribal gods. And uh, Moloch was known in Carthage as Baal Hamon. Baal Hamon, if you wish. And this, this was uh, this, this devil god that, to which they sacrificed their children by the hundreds to appease him. So this, you know, Rome, ancient Rome, I mean, the Rome of the, uh, 
uh, of the kings, uh, the Rome of the Republic was in this, this, the death battle against Carthage. And now, modern day Romans, if there are any left, have erected this shrine to this devil god of the Carthaginians and, and referred to that. I mean, after all, Rome is known as the Eternal City, right? And now they set this tribute up to the immortal myth of their mortal enemy, Carthage. What an insult. Even to pagan Rome, they would consider this to be an outrage. But to Christian Rome, inconceivable. You know, there are two great emblems, two great pictures that, that, that to everyone in the world say Rome. Pagan Rome represented by the Colosseum. Everyone knows that. Immediately, you know, when they see the Colosseum, that's what they think of. The facade of St. Peter's Basilica, when everyone sees that, they immediately think in terms of Christian Rome. And here we have, in this, just in this past year, the enshrinement of pagan idols in both of those iconic places of the Colosseum, where the martyrs suffered, and in the Vatican itself, where St. Peter suffered, right, right over the site of St. Peter's martyrdom. And what these two things have, Moloch, otherwise called Kronos, otherwise called Saturn, otherwise called Baal Haman. What they all have in common, on the one side, Northern Africa and Pachamama in South America, child sacrifice. They are demon gods and goddesses appeased by the bloody and cruel deaths of children. And we find them enshrined in Rome, from the Colosseum to the Vatican. Something's going on here, Tom. Now, the reason I mention that is Father Amorth wrote that book back in 1999, and he talks about how one can invite the demon in. Mm -hmm. This is truly a way of inviting the demon to take control, to worship the demon, to worship him, offer him that, de that worship there, mm -hmm. is uh, an explicit invitation to the demon, to, to take power. It's giving power over oneself to do that. And you believe that's what's happening in the Vatican? And I believe that's exactly what's happening right now. And um, actually, uh, well, I mean, we, this might take it somewhat far afield, but uh, Father Malachi Martin, who was an enigmatic figure, to say the, the, the least, right? <laughs> yes. In his book, The Keys of This Blood, about the page, I think, 632, 633, 634, is talking about Fatima, the, the, the predictions of Our Lady of Fatima. But he's also talking about this, this, this malevolent power, which is in the Vatican, he says, which has involved child sacrifice, child abuse. Now, this book was a bestseller. It sold well over a million copies. And in that book, I mean, Malachi Martin, this, this one-time Jesuit, is talking about, in the Vatican, this ineradicable, malevolent power that is in the Vatican, in the time of Paul VI. He even ties it together with Scottish Rite Freemasonry in the 33rd uh, parallel in Charleston, South Carolina, right? Masonry. He ties it together with that. And um, 
you'd think that this would raise an eyebrow. Millions, a million plus copies of this sold. And he has this in black and white during in those pages that I just mentioned to you, 632 to 635. And no one says anything. As though, oh, you know, it doesn't, it, it means nothing to them. But he says that this is so. <laughs> now, uh, he wrote that book long before Father Morth wrote what he wrote, but it coincides exactly to what he's saying and to what's happening right now. So um, when Father Amor says the need has never been greater to, to meet this challenge, um, he's a man who knows what he's speaking of. <laughs> and yet um, the, the Novus Ordo is, is virtually powerless to respond, even those who want to respond, who recognize the evil. If they, if they have any, any hope of responding, it, it can only be because they, they realize they have to use the old traditional right of exorcism. But, Tom, even at that, one of the first things Paul VI did, actually, the first of the sacraments that he changed, they changed them all, in the aftermath of Vatican II, was the right of ordination to of deacons, priests, and bishops. And he did away with the ordination of exorcists Exorcist used to be one of the minor orders to which everyone who was on his way to the priesthood would be ordained in preparation for his progress toward the priesthood. Right? They did away with that. In the Novus Ordo, they did away with the ordination of exorcists. Their priests are not ordained exorcists. <laughs> there are those who would argue their priests aren't even ordained priests because of the <clears throat> corruption of the ordination right, they have a very good point that should be taken very seriously, have very good reason behind that, that argument. But this is what, this is what we as traditional Catholics are up against right now, this complete capitulation. But even beyond that, it's, it's actually a collusion, truly, the true collusion with the true enemy on the part of the leaders of the Novus Order right now. They are actually giving not only aid and comfort to hell, to the devil. They're welcoming the devil in them, mm-hmm. in their idol worship. Well, Father, another of the reasons that Father Morth wrote this book was because he said there is so many misunderstandings, so much misinformation that's being spread about this topic. He said that, that there is just a, a general uh, worldwide confusion about, about this. And it sounds like you're saying, Father, that this is being intentionally spread by the, the modernists in the Vatican today. Absolutely. But, well, their whole principle of multiculturalism, mm-hmm. everything has to be multicultural, which means accept the pagan roots sure. of the yeah. people in their culture, yeah. bring that into the churches. Well, what's going to come in with that is going to be devils and demons. Right. Well, Father, uh, Father Morph in the book, he attempts to dispel some of the confusion and, and lays down some of the basics regarding exorcisms. And so I would like to run some of this by you. Uh, in the beginning of the book, he says that the purpose of exorcism is twofold. The one purpose is the liberation of those who are obsessed. And the, the second uh, purpose of exorcism, this is the starting point of exorcism, is that of, uh, of diagnostics, of that mm-hmm. d- diagnosing if this is actually a satanic influence or not. Is that true, Father? It is absolutely true. Okay, so there, there's yeah. a twofold purpose to that. Yes, and the first purpose is diagnostic. 
Okay. Father Morth explains there, too, I think very well, his point. And that is when a person is brought to him who is showing signs, very peculiar signs. Uh, first of all, I think he does a good job of explaining that the, the church doesn't automatically assume the person is possessed. Right. Possession is a preternatural thing. It is something that is beside nature and the work of a de demonic power, right? But the church assumes, kind of her default mode, is to assume there is some natural explanation for the phenomenon, illness, mental illness, or whatever, okay? So the church traditionally would send someone to a physician, would send uh, someone to a psychiatrist, a psychologist, or somebody who could make some kind of a diagnosis. But we're not talking about a worldly psychologist. We're talking about a Catholic psychiatrist or a Catholic psychologist who knows the faith, believes the faith, practices the faith, and can tell the difference when something between when something is a natural phenomenon or something that cannot be explained or accounted for by anything natural, okay? In that case, uh, the exorcist will receive that, that diagnosis or recommendation from a, a medical person who is competent to say, we have no natural explanation for what is taking place here. So the exorcist begins already with a certain amount of uh, preparedness for what he's dealing with. But you, one has to remember, Tom, you know, we're not, this, this is not Hollywood, okay? And uh, the church certainly is not meant to, to uh, handle these things the way Hollywood does. <clears throat> the devil in Hollywood is, is riding high and throwing thunderbolts and making all kinds of displays of himself. In fact, when the devil... Uh, the, the devil doesn't do that usually, unless he feels very secure that no one can get him out. Mm -hmm. But when the devil encounters someone who actually is an exorcist, the devil knows that that exorcist has power over him. And so the demon will do this. The demon will withdraw, bury himself, as it were, conceal himself as much as possible because he does not want to be detected, because if he's detected, he can be expelled. And so Father Morth makes the point that when people were brought to him, he would see no sign. They would show no signs of possession anyway. They seemed perfectly normal. He would even tell them that he just, he's giving them prayers of blessing, right. which is true. Yeah. And uh, so as not to alarm them. Okay. Yeah. And he said that he would see them regularly for uh, uh, weeks, months. In, in some cases, I think he even went as much as a year or a little more and was almost on the point of saying, there is nothing I can detect here until something would tip him off. There was something going on. A look in the eye, some reaction of the person, you know, the subject involved. And Father Amorth would press it then and there was, in fact, a possessing demon there, but he had to be flushed out into the open. He was desperate. The demon was desperate not to reveal himself because it, the first act of power that the exorcist can exert over the demon is to force him to come out in the open and make himself known. But he has to be forced to do that. And the next thing that the ritual says that the exorcist must do is demand that the demon reveal its name. Because demons have names. 
And um, again, generally, as you understand from his book, but also from the Gospels themselves, that we're not talking about one possessing demon. We're talking about like a, a group of them. And uh, our Lord talks about that in the Gospel. When a, the unclean spirit goes out of a man, he wanders through wastes, and not finding a place to rest, he returns to the soul that he'd left. He re returns to the person he had left and found it swept and garnished, in other words, all cleaned up, but not secure. He can retake that soul. He can regain power there. And then he brings in seven devils worse than himself. So they, they do uh, really kind of congregate, as it were. And th the worst devils will ride, uh, as it were, on the successes of the lesser of the lesser powerful demons. And they will come in and they will infest the place, like an infestation. Our Lord was um, uh, exercising in the gospel and, and he set this example. He, did, he, he ordered the demon to reveal its name and the answer came back, my name is Legion because we are many. And our Lord cast out that legion of demons there. I notice I'm using the word devil and demon. Devils usually refer to fallen angels. Demons usually refer to condemned human souls. And of course, they're the ones that want to take possession because by nature, they are human souls which are by nature designed to be united with bodies. They want that human control. They want the control of that person, body and soul. And so in the gospel, our Lord says, the demon says, I will go back to the house which I had left, my house. He regards it that way as his rightful dwelling place because he was able to conquer it and take it. And now his job is to hold it. And the first step he has to hold it is to hide from anyone who would have the power to get him out, the exorcist. And when he can't do that anymore, when the exorcist first diagnoses the presence of the demon, <clears throat> next step is to take the, the next act of power to command the devil to reveal his name. Because then, then the commands that the exorcist gives are very direct. They're directed specifically to that demon to let go, to get out. Um, so what Father Moore says, of course, is spot on there again. Diagnosis is the first part, and sometimes it, is, it takes longer than the exorcism itself. Because by the time the diagnosis is made, the demon is already shown that he is subject to the authority of the exorcist by the very fact that the exorcist compelled him to come out of hiding. That's like the beginning of the end for the, for the demon. Mm -hmm. Father, how does one become possessed? Because in this book, Father Murth, he talks a lot about uh, things such as witchcraft and black magic and hexes and curses and all of this. Is all of that really, really true, Father? It is absolutely true. So someone can become possessed? Well, the real story behind the movie The Exorcist involved a Lutheran boy. There's, there's actually a documentary about that called In the Grip of Evil. One can actually obtain that. You know, it's, it's available. And uh, the documentary is very powerful. It, it contains the eyewitness account of the seminarian who the Jesuit in St. Louis took with him to assist him in the exorcism. And in the documentary, the, the seminarian now, 
well, at that time, the documentary was made a Jesuit priest. Um, was, I must have been approaching 70, 70 years old anyway, I guess. But, um, you know, when he, when he speaks in a very, this very simple, straightforward way, you can tell uh, that it's very credible what he's saying here. Um, but in any case, one would have to see it to understand what I'm saying here. Why it is very impressive this way. But this is an example of a young lad who might have been, oh, nine, ten years old, and his parents uh, called upon the boy's aunt to babysit him. But the boy's aunt was into the occult, and while babysitting the boy, she got him involved in using the Ouija board. Now, the Ouija board was invented by occultists to practice the occult, to contact the dead, okay? And these are not saints in heaven they're contacting, okay? And, um, and after the aunt died, uh, they began to notice strange phenomena going on in the house. Whenever the boy was present, there'd be scratching on, inside the walls. And things would rise off the ground and fly across the room. They even took the boy to their Protestant, their Lutheran minister, who may not have really believed in all this. <clears throat> but the Protestant minister, the Lutheran minister, uh, witnessed that very night the, the bed in which the boy was asleep rise off the ground and float across the room right before his very eyes. The next day, this is in the documentary, the Lutheran minister returned the boy to his parents and said, you need to talk to a Catholic priest about this. The bishop of the diocese, taking this as true, that there was a genuine possession here, assigned a newly ordained priest, a Father Hughes, to the exorcism. Big mistake. You don't assign a newly ordained priest to something like that. You need a seasoned, battle-hardened priest to handle that. It wound, that, that came to an end abruptly when the young lad was restrained in kind of a hospital bed, in a hospital run by nuns, and with his bare hands, I mean, it's a child's hands, reached through the mattress, grabbed one of the springs of the mattress, and just ripped it free and raked the priest's arm right through his sleeve, requiring a hundred stitches to close the wound. Well, that was the end of Father Hughes's uh, foray into the field of exorcism. As it turned out, you know, the, the devil will do various things. I mean, the, the demons hate us, right? They do hate us. Um, and um, th their their hatred of us is is bred by a um, uh, a jealousy, a resentment, a, um, a just just hatred. And um, they like to wound, they like to injure, they like to uh, attack any way they can. And some one sign of exorcism is when when scratches just appear out of nowhere on the body, right before your very eyes. They just raise right off the, the skin. And there were uh, words that were being scratched into this little boy's body that led the parents to take him to St. Louis. The Jesuits were in charge of the university, St. Louis University there. There was a Jesuit priest named Father Baudern, a real old-style, stern, traditional kind of Jesuit who was battle-hardened and absolutely unmovable. He was given the exorcism, but he's the one who took this young seminarian with him and not, he didn't even tell him what they were getting into. 
the seminarian was rather taken <laughs> aback by it when he found out what they were setting out to do. But uh, it was Father Baudern who stayed with this exorcism day by day by day by day for weeks, months. <clears throat> kind of interesting how it ended, too. Because, you know, the demon was manifesting itself, uh, snarling, and, you know, the, the voice coming from the boy was not his voice at all. You know, it was a hellish voice that was challenging them and cursing at them. And they, and all of a sudden, after they pursued the exorcism through Lent, Holy Week, Eastertide, the demons know when they're going to be expelled. That's the curious thing. Once they have been flushed out and forced to reveal themselves, it's as though they know how long they can hold on. And they know when the time is approaching that they're going to have to let go. And the exorcist can actually demand to know that from them. But in the very end, all of a sudden, in the, more, in the course of a, a session of exorcism, the young boy's bodies just sat bolt upright in the bed. And there came out of him another voice. And it wasn't the voice of the boy. And it wasn't the voice of the demon. It was another voice, which was a very masculine, powerful voice that said, leave now. And there was this struggle going on as the devil resisted and the voice repeated, leave now. And that was it. And the boy fell back. It was over. At the same time, there were Jesuits praying in the Jesuit church in the other side of town. And the Jesuits who were there reported the same thing. They saw this figure, this towering figure of St. Michael the Archangel in the sanctuary over the altar. And I think they said there was a tremendous like clap of thunder or something that coincided with that event. You know. So it's a very interesting documentary, and as I say, um, well, I'd let people judge for themselves. <laughs> I, I consider it very, very believable. Um, in the course of the exorcism, the young boy, with his parents' consent, became a Catholic. He was baptized as a Catholic. He was still possessed. Baptized as a Catholic, received his first Holy Communion. Oh, the demon resisted that. But the young boy was did actually receive Holy Communion. And one might say, well, how can this be? Could he be in the state of grace? He was baptized? Yeah. Why? Well, it wasn't his fault, necessarily. I mean, he didn't surrender deliberately or voluntarily. But the demon, as it were, forced its way in through this occult practice of the ant, the Ouija board, right? And that young lad did not have the power to resist him. And uh, not only that, but to be successfully exercised, the person who is possessed needs to want the devil expelled. If the person who's possessed does not want the demon expelled, it's virtually impossible to get the demon out. So, in the case of this young lad, I don't know what, might have been 12, 13, 14 years old by that time, he would have had to make that act of the will that he 
in a sense, was pushing from the inside while the exorcist was pulling from the outside to get that demon out. And it was, it was successful. The only hope the demon has of being allowed to stay is that he makes um, it's so hard and so terrible for the exorcist, the exorcist gives up or gives out. Um, he's got to outlast the exorcist. But, you know, with the traditional church, that's impossible because there's always someone who's going to stand up. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the Novus Ordo Church, uh, the, the demon has a field day. Mm-hmm. He has a field day. It's like the field has been swept. The modernists have swept the field for him and have just basically surrendered all of these souls to him. It's a terrible thing. Father, you, you mentioned the, the Lutheran minister in this particular case. I thought it was rather interesting, and I wanted to get your take on this. In the book, Father Morth says that Protestant ministers, uh, they can have the power to exercise demons. He said that uh, in the Gospels, Christ gave the power to exercise to those who believe in his name. And he says that he himself, Father Morth, has witnessed instances where uh, Protestant ministers have successfully exercise an individual. Is that true, Father? Can a Protestant minister actually exercise, successfully exercise someone who is possessed? Uh, That's a very good question. And, um, you know, one would think that one had to be in the state of grace to do that. But one thing our Lord also made clear is prayer and fasting is absolutely necessary. Yes. Um, To be in the state of grace, one has to have the virtue of faith, the virtue of hope, and the virtue of charity. Right? Is it possible that a Protestant minister might be so confused he doesn't know the truth, but he can have the virtue of faith, believing what he believes is revealed by God, but he's ignorant of the truth? Is it possible? So there's, evidently, Father Amorth believes it is possible to that. Um, the thing is, there are... Well, you know, our Lord says something in the gospel that is very interesting. <clears throat> that I think constitutes an answer to that question. The apostles came to our Lord one day and said, you know, there are those who are not of us, of the disciples, who are exercising demons in thy name, in the name of Jesus. And the indication was that they were being successful but they were not disciples of Christ. <clears throat> but they were invoke, invoke, invoking the name of Christ. And that name alone had that power. So it wasn't so much really even the person, of who, the one doing the exercising, but the name of Jesus Christ itself had that power. There's another episode in uh, Sacred Scripture, and I, th- I think it might be, not in the Gospels, but in the Acts of the Apostles, <clears throat> where there were those who presumed to exercise in the name of Christ and the Apostles. <clears throat> but the account is that the demons turned on them and said, well, Christ I acknowledge, and the Apostles I, rec- I, rec- I know, but who are you? And the possessed set upon them with superhuman strength, and they regretted having done that, dared to do that. <clears throat> so maybe it was that they were regarding the name as, as sort of like magic, 
Like Simon Marcus, one of the first converts, was a magician, and that's how he saw it. Um, but maybe there were those who really had faith in the name and Jesus Christ, and uh, therefore could invoke his name sincerely and and accomplish the exorcism just by the power of the holy name of Jesus. <clears throat> and it is very likely, it isn't said in the gospel, <clears throat> that even though they weren't members of the disciples, they probably very much became such, you know, when they had this experience, if they really invoked the name of our Lord successfully <clears throat> in expelling demons. Um, but one has to be very, very careful <clears throat> because the demon can turn. If you are not, if you are not really prepared, if, you're in the, if you are already in the devil's power uh, by being in the state of mortal sin, the devil's not going to respect you. <clears throat> you know, there's a, there's a place uh, in the book where Father Morse says a demon, the demon says to him, we, again, notice plural, we suffer more here or now than we would in hell. Which Father Morse says at first puzzled him. And so he, again, the exorcist is the one who asks the questions. He does the interrogating. He must never allow himself to be caught off guard, to be drawn into responding to the devil's questions, as though he is the one being questioned and the devil is in charge of interrogating him. He was never given to that. So the Father Amor says, <clears throat> in response to that, we suffer more here than we would in hell. Father Amor said, well, why don't you just release this person, give up this possession, and go back to hell if you would suffer less there? And the answer that came back is truly demonic. The answer was, we are here to make this person suffer. But that is really devilish, you know, that we are willing to suffer more here in order to make this person suffer. That is really hatred there. Shows the depths of the demon's hatred. But the question that really occurred to me when I read that was, why would the demon, the possessing demon, suffer more during an exorcism than he would in hell. I mean, it makes perfect sense, really, because if the exorcist, if the exorcism makes, forces him to let go, that can only be because the exorcism imposes such a, is so traumatic for the demon that it forces him to release the person, even against his will like prize that person loose from his power. So it must do something to the, the depossessing demon that is very uncomfortable for the demon. But the question is why? Why would an exorcism do that? Even more so than hell. And the answer, I think, comes back very clearly is because in an exorcism, the devil is confronted with holiness, confronted with with God and godly things and those who love God. The devil doesn't confront that in hell. <clears throat> uh, but when in the exorcism the devil is confronted with holy things that are consecrated to God, uh, when he's confronted with the, the holy name of Jesus, when he's confronted with the, the name of Mary, the Blessed Mother, with St. Joseph, St. Michael the Archangel, <clears throat> these are things he does not have to be confronted with in hell. And as horrible as hell is, uh, 
It is nowhere near as, shall we say, punishing as the, the demon would experience if he were forced to stand in the presence of God in heaven. That would be the worst possible fate he could ever endure, having to face God forever in heaven. <clears throat> so hell is a place of banishment. It's actually a place of, uh, merciful in that regard. <clears throat> and that is why the devil suffers so much in exorcism, because he's confronted with, with faith. He's confronted with hope. He's confronted with love of God and love for God. And uh, this is what he can't stand. And this is what ultimately, uh, holy, that confrontation with the holy forces him eventually to just give up. And Father, talking about this hatred of, of the devil and, and demons, I thought it was interesting in the book, Father Morth talks a lot about how, um, you know, I, I quoted the, the bishops who were afraid of, uh, of performing an exorcism. And he says that oftentimes exorcists, are, they encounter that where they want to perform an exorcism, say, in someone's house or on a certain premises. And a lot of times that they'll, they'll face resistance from the, the people because they say they don't, they don't, you know, they don't want the devil to retaliate against them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Father Morse says that the, the devil hates us so much that he is already doing as much harm to us as, as, a, as God will permit him to do. So he says that we shouldn't fear something like that. But it seems, Father, you know, in, in the, uh, the stories of the exorcisms, uh, you know, the exorcism of Emily Rose, it seems that the, the devil does uh, retaliate in a sense. You know, there, there's uh, lots of stories of uh, where the, the exercising priest, the devil, will um, do things such as keep him up all night long with, with certain noises or, or um, just kind of harass him in some way. So that does seem to be a sort but of remember that that is not really portrayed so much as retaliation as during the exorcism trying to discourage the priest from going forward. And once the exorcism occurs and the demon is driven out, then it would be retaliation if the devil wouldn't, you know, wouldn't leave him alone okay. and kept tormenting you afterwards, saying, "Well, you know, you drove me out, so I'll, I'll, I'm going to get back at you right. now." But that—that's not the case. Okay. In fact, as I recall, Father Morth mentions as one case in all those years where he actually saw the devil try to attack the exorcist. And he said there were witnesses who saw this as the exorcist was driving. They saw his car like go out of control. It was taking an off-ramp on a highway, actually, and going to get gasoline. And when the car began accelerating, 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 and the priest had no control, and it actually ran into the gas pumps and everything burst into flames, the priest was rescued and did not perish in the flames. But those who were following the priest off the, the ramp there said there were two figures clearly marked sitting side by side in that car. The priest was alone. There was no one there with him. But they said, no, there were two silhouettes there. there were, and everyone was very determined that that was the case. And uh, the priest insisted he was alone in that car. There was nobody else in that car with him. But, of course, we know that's not the case either. So that's the only case Father Morth said, as I recall, that he knew was aware of, even in the course of all those years. But remember, I mean, when, when a priest is involved in an exorcism, yes, the devil will do what he can to discourage him from going forward. In any way, any way the devil can do that. Um, and he's trying to outlast him. He's trying to discourage him. 
whether it be a sleepless night or some horrific experience, as you saw in the exorcism of Emily Rose, mm -hmm. which was very unnerving, you know, um, that can go on. But once, once the exorcism occurs, uh, the devil is vanquished. Okay. And, and he may still uh, wander looking now, you know, to find some new prey. But we also know that, uh, the that we don't know why God allows these demons to wander. We know he does. The prayer to St. Michael the Archangel, we pray every day. Cast into hell Satan and all evil spirits who wander through the world seeking the ruin of souls. What does that tell us? I mean, it tells us exactly what we're talking about right now. But we also know that the devil's, uh, why God would allow that, we don't know. But we know that those souls that are pried loose from their possession uh, can be then sent to hell, just engulfed in hell, and never to emerge again, you know. So uh, that, no doubt, is the, the fate of many of these condemned souls, these demons that wander the earth, that when they're expelled, they're expelled. Mm -hmm. Well, Father, to, to kind of wrap all of this up, what, what kind of advice would you offer us in, in the world today? Because the book talks so much about how incredibly prevalent this, this problem is. Um, you know, as, as you mentioned, the devil likes to remain hidden. And so it seems that, uh, you know, there's certainly a lot more cases of not only demonic uh, possession, but as Father Morth makes the distinction between that and the uh, the oppression and obsession, um, there seems to be a lot of satanic activity in the world today, and it's even on the rise. Father Morth says. So, how, how do we Father fight against that? talks about World War II. He talks about leaders, world leaders, who are possessed. Yeah. Such clear signs of possession. Yeah. And he says that it would only take a handful of world national leaders. Uh, who are possessed by the devil to govern the world, as it were, to lead the entire world into Satanism. Right. And he mentioned World War II as an example of that. Leaders possessed who took the world on this horrific ride to hell in the war, world war. Um, so we, we, in answer to your question, Tom, I just say we have to remember that there is such a thing as perfect possession, where individual completely surrenders his will to Satan, right? But there's also such a thing as imperfect possession. And we might even say that to some extent, anyone who's in the state of mortal sin is in a state of imperfect possession. Because if he's in the state of mortal sin, he's already surrendered his will somewhat to Satan. He's already surrendered his will somewhat to the demon. And so that imperfect or partial possession has already begun. It's sort of like a partial eclipse, you know. And what the devil wants now is to gain more and more of that surrender of that will to him until finally the demon can reach that goal of having that person just surrender completely and be possessed. It's a progressive sort of thing, though. And... Uh, we have to realize that if we're in the state of mortal sin, if we're not in the state of God's grace, if we commit mortal sin once, we're in the state of mortal sin, if we make a habit of mortal sin, all the more so, we're surrendering more and more of our will to his power. And um, that is like a home invasion <clears throat> in which we are welcoming the demon to take control. 
<clears throat> and uh, we see this happening not only in individuals, we see this happening in nations, and we see it happening in the Novus Ordo now, uh, that these, these devil gods and goddesses of the pagans are being welcomed, even um, admired, and even worshipped, um, and invoked in prayer. They've actually, uh, I mean, there, there were prayers that were composed to the, this devil goddess, mother earth goddess, Pachamama, or Pachamama. There were prayers composed by the Novus Ordo clergy and hierarchy to be prayed to this goddess, this demon goddess. And uh, if that's not adoration and worship, I don't know what, what, what else it would be, you know. So it wasn't just the act of bowing down before them. They issued prayers and called for public prayers to these things. And uh, so this, this is, uh, you know, true, clearly we're, we're witnessing an act of apostasy here. Multiple acts of apostasy. So uh, the, this means that we have to be very concerned to be in the state of grace. In other words, to hearken to what Our Lady told us at Fatima, stop offending God by sin. We have to stop that. We have to make it up that the, the very purpose of every breath, of every heartbeat, to be in the state of grace, to live in the state of grace, to fight for that against the world and the flesh and the devil. We have to fight for that, to remain in the state of God's grace. And uh, so that, again, we're not even partially possessed by surrendering our wills to, to Satan. And uh, this gives us a, 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 the ability to have power over him. Be in the state of grace, you know, means that, he, that Satan and the demons have more reason to fear us than we do to fear them. If we're in the state of grace and have a love for God, that we have more power over them than they have over us because we will not surrender our souls to them. And we can begin then to fight back and to take back from him what, it, what he has stolen from Christ, from the church, from even of our own loved ones, stolen from us, you know. Uh, and so we have to battle back there, and as the church militant should and must. Father Amorth sounded the, the alarm like a trumpet blast, a calling to arms here. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we have to answer that call. As traditional Catholics, we have to understand the meaning of what, what he's saying here, take it to heart, and really respond to that. He uh, He's basically, um, in the advice that he's giving, though, without actually making the reference, I think, refer, uh, re telling us we have to do what our Blessed Mother herself has told us at Fatima. So he's not actually revealing anything to us that we shouldn't have already known as Catholics, that hasn't already been taught us by the Church. But because of Vatican II and what has happened his words now um, take on a special clarion call, as it were, a character of a, of a trumpet blast to call, call to arms, uh, which the bishop should have been doing even back um, in the early, you know, a hundred years ago. St. Pius X was doing that. Um, he was making that call to arms there, but again, um, 
All too often, his bishops did not did not answer that call, and the Catholic lay people didn't either. Also, but anyway, it all comes down to leave the Novus Ordo, flee the Novus Ordo. It is it is modernism, and insofar as modernism, it is modern paganism. It is also in league with Marxism, which is also very much a form of modern paganism. And uh, I, I know, uh, Tom, I'm going out a bit here, but if I may just uh, bring bring up a point here that I think is worthy of mentioning, okay? There are modern writers on Marxism now. This is even post-neo-Marxism. Uh, post-modern Marxism now, they consider themselves. Who say that Marx really was not against religion. Karl Marx, the Satanist, was really not against religion. He was against traditional religion that saw a transcendent God over and above us, who was our creator. But Karl Marx really wanted a religion of man, which had to be the foundation of communism, of Marxism. He wanted that to be the new religion. <clears throat> and so he's, and these, these writers, these post-modern Marxist writers are now saying, now is the time <clears throat> to bring that religion to the foreground in Marxism. And they say it is neo-paganism. Neo-paganism, they say. That is the religion of Marxism. That is a religion that coincides perfectly with Marxism. And this is the reason. They say that neo-paganism emphasizes that everything is connected. Does that sound familiar? The working document for the Amazon Synod stresses this over and over and over again. That very mantra, that it even calls it the mantra of Francis. Everything is connected. Meaning that a pantheism, this world, right? Everything is connected in this world, right? And uh, it's, it's so uh, amazing to read this and the writing of the neo-modernist, post-modern Marxist, saying now is the time to meld these natural, not just allies, they belong together, the religion of Marxism, neo-paganism, and that must become the world religion. Its mantra is a mantra of Francis. Everything is connected. If you want to know what that means and what they mean by that, Go read that working document of the, of the Amazon Synod and find out. It's, it's Marxism. It's modernism. It's neo-paganism. No wonder they're bringing their Malaks and their Pachamamas, right? And worshiping them now. This is, this is the next step. Some might even say it's going to be the final step. Father, thanks for being here tonight. This is a fascinating topic and uh, these are very important words that need to be said and I don't know that many others are saying them, so I thank you for that, Father. Well, I haven't heard anybody saying these things, but one can re re what all, all one has to do is research this and they'll find what I found. They'll find this too. It's out there. Um, they'll, see, they'll see exactly what I'm talking about. 
In fact, maybe we can even have a separate little program because I, I, I thought, you know, I think I need to read sections of that working document in the Senate and read what the neo-Marxists, the postmodernist Marxists are saying and, and read the words of Francis and put it all, to, and let, let them see they're all saying the same thing. <clears throat> Neo-paganism is the religion of man. It is the religion of Marx. It is the religion of Satan. So anyway, uh, Tom, the answer, our traditional Catholic faith. It's the one thing that not only answers all of this, but see, it's the one thing that has the power to overcome all of these evil things. There you find the power of God's grace. We have to practice the traditional Catholic faith, take it to heart, and we have to be, above all things, not only have faith, we have to be faithful to Christ in the way we live our lives. Come back to the traditional Mass, traditional sacraments. Absolutely. Thank you, Father. You're welcome. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and also to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.